If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 1. We as a church have been studying the gospel according to Luke, which we'll take a break from today. Uh, We would be right there in the section dealing with the second coming of Jesus. But given the fact that it is the season um, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I thought we would not talk about second coming today, even though it would be relevant. Um, But we'll talk about his first coming today as we consider the meaning of the manger, as it were. Uh, We're going to look at some classic texts to be reminded about why Jesus came, who Jesus is, what he came to do, so that we might know who he is, so that we might respond appropriately. And This morning we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18, all the way through chapter 2, um, to see how far we get. If you'd like an outline this morning, I've highlighted five of the names of Jesus in Matthew 1 and 2, and so we'll build our thoughts around those five names so that we can understand who he is, what he came to do. The first name is the name Jesus, and we see it emphasized in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 21. And if you'd follow along with me, we'll start working our way through Jesus being named Jesus. It says in verse 18 of Matthew 1, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She hasn't cheated on you. There's something extraordinary and supernatural that has happened. You may or may may not understand it, But it is what has happened, so much so that Joseph, as is custom, if you claim a child as your own, you will name the child Jesus. You will embrace him as legitimate. In fact, not just legitimate, you will embrace him and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Anything but ordinary. But when I read verse 21, I read verse 21 and I say, this is great news. (laughs) Hopefully you read verse 21 and you say, this is great news. I say it's great news because if he came to save his people from their sins, it's great news to me because I have sins. (laughs) Okay, I have many sins. Um, I have sinned. I do sin. Dare I say, I'm sinning right now. And you say, are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. And whether you're willing to say it about yourself or not, I love you enough to say, you're sinning right now. And you say, how could we say that? I'm not in handcuffs. I didn't have a great morning, but it wasn't that bad of a morning. But when we think like that, we, we don't really have a place for Jesus. We, we reinvent him as something else. 
as a life coach, as a perfect example. Yes, he did everything perfectly. But we think of him as something other than who he really is. He came to save his people from their sins. And this is, this is a tall order for us. I, I consider it a challenge for me to explain to you what sin is, and you're in church. Not to mention the fact that the people that you know and that I know that aren't in church and that were there for sure not supposed to talk about sin. What, what is it that he came to save us from? Something we all have. I read this past week, Ecclesiastes, for whatever reason. I must have been depressed and wanted to be more depressed. Um, <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's what Solomon said. Famous, world famous at the time, even from people who didn't follow his God for being the wisest man on the planet. So it's something we all have, but what is it? Well, in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but in 1 John it says sin is lawlessness. It's when we don't obey the law. Well, in particular, he's talking about God's law. And you say, well, what does God's law say? Well, if you interviewed Jesus and said, Jesus, what does God's law say? Boil it all down for us. Matthew 22, he makes it very clear. God's law is you should love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. In olden times, people would say, oh, thought, word, and deed. Sometimes it's pretty easy to do the deed side. Word is a little harder. And thought, I'm so busted. See, because even though I prayed about the sermon I prayed those who, for those who would be hearing the sermon. I prayed for myself. I prayed that God would be honored and glorified. I know that even on my best day, I know that I'm not doing everything that I do for the supreme, ultimate glory and honor of God. Loving you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, not to mention my neighbor as myself. Typically, it's the exact reverse, right? Because we're sinners. I do everything ultimately for me, and sometimes I'm, I'm pretty good at showing it for other people, at least as far as you see, and then God is relegated to some sort of afterthought. Sin is lawlessness. Everyone has sinned. Oh, now it's starting to make more sense if you're following me, because if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, from our lawlessness, he's a great savior. It's no, no wonder we call it good news. It's the gospel. It's the gospel because it's what we need. It is our, our supreme need, our greatest need. The hierarchy of needs is all wrong. Our greatest need is a religious need. Religion means relationship with one's deity. You know what? Our greatest need is to have a right relationship with our deity. Our greatest need is actually a spiritual need, a religious need. And the great news is Jesus came to deliver, to rescue. Maybe just as a little tangent, um, because that's what preachers do. And so and I've been to seminary, so I know how to do it. The other thing preachers do is they say, you know, just one more point, And they're always lying. But anyway, <laughs> we're almost done. Uh, but as an aside and as a, as a tangent... You know, we do like to see Jesus as the perfect example. 
And I want to be in the front of the line and say, He is the perfect example. But that's not good news. Because as the perfect example, and you measure yourself against Him, He loved His Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and He loved His neighbor as Himself. That perfect example, when you really stop and think about it, is terrible in the sense of it shows me my guilt. Now, it's wonderful in that it shows me my guilt. He shows me my guilt, and then he voluntarily takes my guilt because he loved me when I wasn't lovely. But we have to remember his name is Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. And that is extraordinary, and that is a great, great, great thing. The name Jesus or Yeshua or the Old Testament name, Joshua. You will call him Yeshua. You will call him Yahweh saves. God saves. That's why you're going to call him Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Every time someone would say Jesus, every time you say Jesus, every time you say Jesus, whether you realize it or not, I don't realize it, I'm not deliberate about it, I'm saying God saves. Yahweh saves. God saves, God delivers, God rescues. It's a great name. It's a great name. Jesus, you you should call his name Jesus because God helps those who help themselves. That would be a contradiction because Jesus doesn't mean God helps those who help themselves. And that's not the gospel. Call him Jesus because God saves. It's like this living testimony uh, that goes on and on and on. It's such a contradiction in a religion that says we believe in Jesus and salvation is by God and us. That's not his name. His name is God saves. It's pretty humbling, right? I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. God saves. Oh, I need Jesus. It's awesome necessary God saves let's move on to another one I don't even want to I'm all excited about this one that was better than anything I've ever said in a sermon ever in my life and I was sinning while I did it it's amazing (laughs) God is kind number two another name is Emmanuel Emmanuel verses 22 to 25 And this is certainly related to the first name. But look with me, if you would, at verse 22. All this took place, the naming of Jesus and the virgin birth, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 7, 14, quoted in our text in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's worthy of an exclamation point in your notes if you're the preacher. The virgin shall conceive. Okay. Extraordinary. Different. Unique. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. We all know what that means, but it's poetic and a nice way of saying it, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. 
Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph does what the angel said to do. Now, Emmanuel, God with us, is fascinating from a couple of angles. So let's look at it from a couple of angles. If Jesus' name is God saves, and according to prophecy, you'll, you'll refer to him as, you'll think of him as, Emmanuel, God with us. Think about how fascinating it is, is to say he's, he's God with us. From the, from the one angle, let's look at it and consider he's God with us because God wasn't with us before. And you can look at it from all different kinds of, of deep or shallow kinds of meanings, but God wasn't with us before. Well, not in the John 1 kind of sense, although that would be true. There's a third angle. No one has seen God at any time, and now the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you could look at it from that side of things. But you could look at it from the side of things of sin as well. He's not with us. In Ephesians chapter 2, we have unbelievers, and he's talking about all unbelievers, and we were all unbelievers at one point in time or another, even if we're now believers. It says, and I quote from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we're without God. See, our sin, our, our, our spiritual treason would be a good way to look at it. Our sin separates us from God. Yes, He's omnipresent. Yes, He's a judge. Yes, He's in charge of hell. All those kinds of things. But, but in a relational sense, he, there's separation. There's division. There's animosity. There's tension. There's conflict. There's, there's no peace. We're without God. Jesus is Emmanuel because God is with us. Personal. He's the mediator. All this is in anticipation. He's the reconciler. He's the, the atoning sacrifice. He is our righteousness. He's the one who, who brings us to God. God with us. I like it when we sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Yeah, God, come and be with us. As we think about Jesus being Emmanuel to come be with us, and that's because apart from Him, God isn't with us. Now let's look at it from a different angle kind of related, but let's think of it in terms of God is with us, but not in a good sense. For God to be with us, apart from a mediator, apart from the God-man Jesus, apart from God saves, if God is with us, is that good? It's terrible. I was thinking of Isaiah 7, well, okay, context, I'm trying to understand better, Isaiah 6. You know, Isaiah 6, God is with Isaiah. And it's a terrible thing, right? As Isaiah has that vision of God, and it's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he sees God in this unique way and catches a glimpse of his glory. And what does Isaiah say when he's with God? He says, woe is me. I'm damned. I'm cursed. I have no hope. Because I've seen, the. he calls him the Lord of hosts. One of those kind of weird Old Testament titles and you look it up and you go, oh, the Lord of hosts, the God of warfare, the God who hates sin every day. I saw a glimpse of that God. I was with God and with God is not good. And here in our text, because Jesus is mediator, because Jesus is reconciler, because Jesus is, is come to be on our side, he's God with us. Yes. 
It's good. Friend of sinners. Extraordinarily so. All of this is according to prophecy, he says. It's been unfolding for a long time. A long time, a la Genesis chapter 3, a long time. This is how it's going to be. For this morning, I don't really want to get into the details of it, but the question does come, why virgin born anyway? Just in passing before we move on. Well, not because God doesn't think sex is okay for married people. Um, read First Corinthians 7. Not now. <laughs> That's not the problem. It's because Jesus is unique. He's set apart. He's different. It's also because while you'll call him Jesus as the incarnate son, before he was the incarnate son, the flesh son, he was the eternal son. So he didn't have his beginning at Bethlehem. And so he's unique and extraordinary in that sense as well. And so he would come into this world. Yes, he needs to be one of us, but he's also different from us. He's not like some other sort of mythological God where deity is placed on him afterward. He's the eternal son. And so when he becomes a human being, he becomes a human being uniquely. More could be said. We, we, we won't do that this morning. John chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they picked up stones to kill him. Because it would be blasphemous for anyone other than him to say that. Okay, let's move on. We are rolling now. We're moving to number three. The next title, we're going to move to chapter two of Matthew. The next title or the next name would be Christ. Christ or Messiah or King. And probably for the millionth time, I remind you of that, but for the sake of those who are just catching on and joining us, again, Christ, New Testament word from the Old Testament, Messiah, Mashiach, anointed one. It's a title for a king. And Jesus has been is the one who comes and he's called Christ. He's called King. He's the Christ. He comes to fulfill all of those promises that there would be an ultimate forever ruling king. We've been learning about that in Luke because it's all over in Luke. He would fulfill the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, we're going to see he's the king. How about verse 1? And this will be in verses 1 to 12. Beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I have to stop there for a moment and say in the days of Herod the king. Herod the great. It's a great time to have Jesus born as far as history is concerned because Herod is great. He is about as sinister as they come, but he is great. He is great, and even to this day we know he's great. He's great because of what's left of the temple uh, and his rebuilding. Herod is great because, go see Masada. Herod is great. Uh, Herod is great, go to, his, go to his vacation home. Herod is great, even 2,000 years later. Look at his swimming pool in the middle of the desert. Herod is great. Power, planning. An amazing, amazing figure, and God chooses to have Herod and the reign of Herod be the time when his son would show up because it's a great time in history in that sense. Great evil, 
great influence, great significance, and that's when Jesus is born. And during that time, we're going to keep reading now in verse 1. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We're going to go faster in just a second, but just a word or two about the wise men. Not as in they really knew Proverbs well. Okay, not, not in the Old Testament sense of wisdom. Wise men uh, think magi, think Babylonian or Persian. Ah, here's a better word. Think astrologers. Okay, Daniel was trained as an astrology person. Okay, uh, a reader of the stars when he was in Babylonian captivity. D- Daniel was like a magi. Okay, so that's who those guys were. They, they're experts in star readings. So they're, they're following this. They, they came to Jerusalem. They, they come from the east, probably Babylon. Verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, here it is, the Christ, okay, the Messiah, the King of David in the ultimate sense, was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Remember, Messiah, Christ, King, ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7 says, When Herod summoned the, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... Oh, got to rearrange your nativity scenes, Right? I did it to my mother-in-law one time. It didn't go over well. Um, okay? They, they didn't come to Bethlehem. Okay? The three kings, and there weren't three kings. We don't know how many there were. So let's just put one away to even make it worse for mother-in-law. Um, they bring three different kinds of gifts, and we sing about three kings. But the Magi, we don't know how many of them there were, and they didn't show up at the stable. They show up at the house. So put them on the other side of the room. Okay? That's Okay? It's fine. Everybody okay with that? Uh, they're en route when Jesus is born, and they come later. Got to get history right. Okay, let's keep going. I, I'm giving you opportunities to have good conversations at, at Christmas time. Okay, talk about the gospel. Let's keep going now. Verse 11. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. For now, let's just acknowledge he's the Christ. Herod's afraid he's the Christ. 
Some of his own people, the Israelites, are afraid he's the Christ. But you know what? He needs to be the Christ. Relevance for you, relevance for me, he needs to be the Christ. Because when the Christ comes, he is the Prince of Peace. Not just peace between us and God, but he's the one who will bring worldwide peace. That's relevant. He will bring equity, fairness, justice. He will remove any and all needs for politics. Hallelujah. Compromise. We're seeing this now at the end of Luke's gospel in the study. We're getting close to second coming stuff. Throughout his earthly ministry, you have these, these previews, restoration, fixing broken things, reconciliation, justice, justice, no more injustice. That's relevant to us. It's relevant when you turn on the news today. No conflicts, no injustice, peace, reconciliation, vertically and horizontally. Prince of Peace. Old Testament talks about him again and again and again and again and again. And now New Testament is saying, this is him. He's the one. Now, if you want to be the Messiah, there's a conflict point. But we can see he's prophesied to be the Psalm 2 ruling and reigning one. The Second Samuel 7 Davidic king, ruling and reigning. Let's move on to the next one. Number four, uh, the son. He's the son. We see this in chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. Now when they, referring to the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quoting Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. puzzling passage of fulfillment on one level. Hosea 11, out of son, excuse me, out of Egypt I called my son. If you read Hosea 11, that's talking about Israel. And Israel and the Exodus, because Israel is called God's son. Even at times called his firstborn son. So historically we've got a deliverance of Israel in the Exodus, because it's God's nation, he calls him his son. And now we see it says it's fulfilled in Jesus, and he'll go to Egypt so he can be delivered out of Egypt. How does that work? It works like this. It works because 
what Israel as God's son previewed, pictured, represented, was all along designed to point forward to one who would not be a failure son, but who would be the son, the faithful son, the ultimate son. That's why the Bible scholars talk about Israel being a type, a picture, a type of the fulfillment, ultimate one, the antitype, who is Christ the Lord. It's in anticipation of him. One of my favorite old Bible teachers, S. Lewis Johnson, said this, Israel's called in the Old Testament God's son. In fact, Israel's called his firstborn. And furthermore, Israel's called the servant of the Lord. Now, if there is one person who is God's unique son and who is the servant of the Lord, it is the Lord Jesus. And so what we have then, talking about this text, is a recapitulating, big word, in our Lord Jesus' experiences of the experience of Israel, which pointed forward to him. That's pretty interesting. It's not exactly the same, but just like we have Adam in the garden, and Israel is called Adam, and Jesus is called last Adam, and so we see it unfold. It would make sense that it would unfold in light of Ephesians chapter 1, that this has all been planned, this, this, this redemption, since before time began. And so it's preview, it's anticipation, it's type fulfillment and we see it here with Jesus happening before our eyes what Israel failed to do Jesus will do faithfully and this is good news for us you say well that's interesting those are interesting points of hermeneutics and and that sort of thing it's good news for us because if we keep reading in Matthew 3 the father will say from heaven about Jesus This is my son. Now read that like a person who's Old Testament literate and who knows about Israel being called a son. And now the father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Stamp of approval. Amen. Yes. He's the one. It's fascinating to see. And in the context of John, or excuse me, of Matthew chapter three, that's where Jesus says he does what he does to fulfill all righteousness. Huh? He does it on behalf of those he represents. He's a good son on behalf of those he represents. Oh, let's connect some dots here. He's a good son, a perfect son on behalf of those who are considered in Matthew chapter one, his people, because he came to save his people from their sins. This is good news for us, for Jesus to be the Son. I get excited about that. Let's move on now. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, that's what wise men do. What was he thinking trusting those guys? 
They're astrologers. <laughs> Became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. He's going to quote Jeremiah 31, verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Strange passage. Rachel was considered by many the, the mother of Israel. Okay? And if you see the passage as, as picturesque, as, as symbolic in that way, Rachel, who historically lamented at this place because of the exiles, and here's Rachel thought to be buried at Ramah, because of Babylonian captivity historically, and Jeremiah, that's where she, she is, is described as weeping there because of the exiles. Broken for the children of Israel. The mother of Israel. Then it makes a little more sense. Because now we're talking about the ultimate Because now we're talking about the slaughter of the children in an attempt to slaughter Messiah. So what he's doing is drawing upon the history of Israel, drawing upon the, the, the famous mother of Israel and, you, and, and saying, in effect, you want to see what she would really weep about? The ultimate. The ultimate exile. But it is in light of ultimate deliverance. It, it, it's calling upon, even, even, even Rachel is, is, is behind this thing. She would know. She would see Jesus as Messiah, if you will. And what's happening here is a terrible thing. There's a lot of dot connecting going on here. Strange at first glance, but with some poetic imagery involved, which is how she was seen even in the Jeremiah 31 passage, it, it, it makes some more sense. I find it fascinating that Jeremiah 31 is the New Covenant text. I mean, you ask me, what's in Jeremiah 31? I don't go, oh, Rachel, you know, mourning in Ramah, Ramah, whatever, however you say it. I never would come, I never would say that. I'd say New Covenant. And when you hear New Covenant, even if you don't know that much about the Bible and you've been to church very often, you'd say, New Covenant in my blood. Oh, communion. Yeah. Because one is tied to another. He's the son. Let's move on to the final one. Number five for this morning, chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. He's called the Nazarene. The Nazarene. Verse 19, but when Herod died, note the irony, <laughs> but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
again, irony because he's trying to kill Jesus. And now those who are trying to kill Jesus are, are dead. Now, connecting some more Old Testament dots here, you can jot it down in your margin if you'd like. Exodus 4.19. That's what I wrote in my margin next to verse 20. is Exodus 4.19, which reads, And the Lord said to Moses, In Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. But here we are not going back to Egypt. We're actually leaving Egypt. But there's definitely an emphasis in Scripture, whether it's here or not, it seems to be there as I read it. Moses? Yeah, Moses is one thing. We're talking about someone far greater than Moses. We're talking about the one to whom Moses would point. We're talking about Jesus. So similar verbiage to Exodus 4.19. He's better than Moses. Verse 21 then says, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he's in Israel, but he's not going to Jerusalem. He's going north to Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Maybe it's on purpose, it's spoken by the prophets, because as far as I know, not one prophet referred to this reality. But what you do have from prophetic literature and from prophets would be, Jesus would be lowly. Jesus would come from humble means. Jesus, um, think of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, no form or majesty, no beauty, despised, rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Other texts as, text as well that would talk about humility. Well, if you're from Nazareth, it's a humble place. Jesus is anything but a nowhere man, but he's from a nowhere land. Because Nazareth is a nowhere land. You probably even think of John chapter 1 verse 46 when Nathaniel said, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, Come and see. It's wrong side of the tracks. I'm sure it's what people from Council Bluff say about Omaha. <laughs> Amen, anybody? <laughs> He's a Nazarene. Lowly, humble, insignificant. Yeah, that's Jesus. The one who came to save his people from their sins. The one who is God with us. The one who is the Messiah. But he needs to live in Nazareth. Because he is the humble one who is going to be exalted. He'll identify with the humble then. He'll represent them. And on and on I suppose we could go. I hope this helps. To do at least this. To, to bring into clearer picture who Jesus really is. We're called to worship Him. And you can't worship what you don't know. Because we're called to worship in truth. How about this? You can't love God if you don't know who He is. Because we're called to love Him even with our minds. 
So as you go, you'll say, okay, what's the application? How does this help me be a better grandparent? In so many ways, that's not the point. It's how does this help me to be a real human being the way human beings were intended to be? Seeing God for who He is and loving Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, it starts by being saved from your sins. By seeing Jesus for who He really is. So the application is endless. But it starts by being in touch with reality. And that's motivating. And it's motivating because we're ambassadors and we're called to tell other people who Jesus is. Maybe this season it will start with you putting the wise men on the other side of the house. Anything to open up conversation about who God is according to our own imaginations made in our likeness in comparison to who He really is, the great Savior whose name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Thank You that He voluntarily went to Calvary to atone for our sins. We're grateful that He has ascended, that He's at Your right hand, and that He promises to come again. And we know that when He does, He will be functioning as Prince of Peace. And He will bring perfect reconciliation, perfect justice. And we're thankful that we don't have to know Him as judge because your son knew him as judge for us. In his name we pray, amen.